Bible, book by book, verse by verse, that's part of part of uh, the pattern that we have here as a church. And the reason is, is because we believe indeed that the, the Bible, the whole counsel of God is, is worthy of digging in and mining the treasures uh, uh, therein. And um, I know that we'll find some great treasures tonight in Psalm 76. It's interesting, however, especially in view of, of this date, um, that we are here in Psalm 76 that speaks of, it speaks of God's wrath. And, and uh, that wrath is sometimes hard for us to deal with. It's not a subject that we typically like to actually even talk about uh, because quite honestly we often don't understand the wrath of God uh, some uh, would say that that uh, God's wrath is his dark side um, Carl Jung the the, the famous uh, psychologist of the mid uh, 20th century uh, said that the wrath of God is his shadow side, the shadow side of the Almighty. Well, I have to take a little issue with that because First John, first chapter, verse 5, says that uh, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, period. He doesn't have a shadow side. Some of us have uh, grown up with uh, memories of maybe emotional preaching that have we could call hellfire and brimstone preaching and and it brings up images of fear um i think in in many respects if that's where we're at with god when uh and the image of the wrath of god brings up fear in us trembling uh, number one f fear is is um is a is understandable because because God is not only um, not only righteous to judge but able to deliver the sentence. He's all powerful, right? Um, and yet we also know that God's God's righteous judgment is an expression of His love, and we're going to we're going to unpack that a bit tonight, and and. We also know that we are the objects of God's chesed, his loving kindness, uh, his covenant love toward us. I think sometimes we have, uh, when we speak of the wrath of God, some of us get this image of uh, God being a heavenly policeman, um, ready, to, ready to pass out tickets or... Um, keep us in line somehow prohibiting us um, from ever knowing the love of God um, sometimes the wrath of God uh, brings to mind vestiges of, of uh, mid the medieval past and um, and the idea that that there is this uh, this ogre in heaven and 
knowing that is that there that imagery of God uh, seemed to be overwhelmingly present in the Middle Ages. There's been a uh, a very swift and uh, how do I say dramatic backlash to that thinking. So much so that um, there are some who would say, no, God. God isn't that at all. He just he's just lovey-dovey. He's a big teddy bear and and our response to that is we say that we don't believe that. We believe that God is uh so loving and only loving that he would not ever be wrathful at all. Um and quite honestly that leaves us at a position of not having any kind of moral imperative at all. To say that there is right and wrong, to say that there is sin and righteousness. Um, we need to understand that all of those are, are images of the wrath of God that do not fit the truth of who God is. It's important to understand that um, one of the very um, inextricable, inextricable characteristics of God. In other words, something, a characteristic of God that cannot be removed from him, cannot be compromised in any way. It speaks of his role. It speaks of his identity. It even speaks of his title. And that is, he is the ultimate judge. He is uh, the final judge. There is no appeals court after God uh, speaks his judgment. Now, that's because he is righteous. He is truth personified. Um, it's interesting, Jesus uh, goes up to Jerusalem uh, at a time when his disciples are thinking, you should not even darken the door of that city because the Jews were uh, pressing to... to um, take Jesus. And um, it happened to be uh, in the fall at the time of the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And, and um, uh, in John chapter 7, we read of that. Uh, Jesus went up secretly apart from the rest of the disciples to Jerusalem. And we read there, um, beginning in verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So that, uh, uh, then, uh, excuse me, then he, uh, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Surely he should be here because after all, this is a feast. Um, and others were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him 
He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. That is Jesus, the Son of God, declaring himself as the righteous one, as the one who is true. And they are hallmarks. Those are hallmark characteristics of the judge who is God alone. Jeremiah writes in chapter 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Um, all of that is introduction to Psalm, <laughs> Psalm 76, which again speaks of God's judgment, his wrath. But it does so in a manner of comforting. It's interesting because the New American Standard titles this psalm, Comfort in Trouble from Recalling God's Mighty Deeds. I'm curious, how many of you have a similar title at the top of Psalm 76 in your Bible? Excuse me? Oh, you are right. Oh, well, then there you go. I got that wrong. You're, thank you, Jesse. So back to Psalm 76. I'm glad my, my, the rest of my stuff didn't get mixed up with that. Um, this is a song of Asaph. We've talked about Asaph in the past. Um, and um, it is uh, a, a song for the choir director. I happen to be a choir director, and uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Now, it starts out with this question, who is God? Verses 1 through 3, God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is Salem, or we would, we would typically call that Salem, right? But there's a reason we need to pronounce it Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. There he broke the flaming arrows, the shield and the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah, he writes. Verse 1, God is defined by his relationships, his people. God is known in Judah, the word is yada. He is known in Judah, in a, and that we know that that word also includes the understanding of an intimate knowledge. He is known in Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom, right? And then um, it's interesting that he uh, he goes right on to say his name is great in Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom. And in other words, God is known and is great in all of the places where his people reside. Um, he is defined as well, not only by his people, but he is defined by the place by his place. His tabernacle is in Salem, Salem or Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. Zion and Salem are the same place. It's very interesting. Where does that 
come from? And I'm just going to go on a brief rabbit trail here. Um, there are uh, some who would say that, that uh, the word Salem comes from uh, Shalem, who is a Canaanite god of the sunset or of dusk. Um, and, and that was the name of this uh, dwelling or this village, if you will, in what became known as Judah. Um, it's interesting, however, that um, uh, the rabbis uh, point out that um, this is also the place where God dwells, the place called Yerushalayim, and we call Jerusalem, Salem. And it is speaking of the Temple Mount, according to uh, the rabbis. And we see there that uh, this place is the, uh, uh, the Yerushalayim, Yer, uh, is a combination of two words. Yeri is Hebrew for the word, uh, for uh, to, the, uh, the idiom to see, to see, and or will see. And the word Shalem speaks of shalom. So it is a place that will see peace. And many of you may have heard that Jerusalem is the city of peace. It's curious that, that uh, this word, Salem, is actually noted in Genesis 14 um, when God promises, um, gives promises to Abram after he has rescued his uh, nephew Lot. Lot is carried off. Lot has gone to live in Sodom, right? Um, and, and he's carried off by a, a band of, of, of uh, infidels or marauders who came and carried off he and a num uh, uh, the, the people of the city. And Melchizedek is noted as the king of Salem. Um, and he brought out bread and wine. And it is noted that he is the priest of God Most High. He came out to meet Abram after he brought Lot back. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Salem that is spoken of here in um, verse 2 is Jerusalem, as is the word Zion. It is the dwelling place of God, and it is the, the, uh, the place of that will see peace. Now, verse 3, he broke the flaming arrows, the shield and the sword and the weapons of war. Uh, we also see God here being designed by what he does. Um, the works that he does. Now, it's curious to me, in our, in our modern uh, science laboratories, word, the word power is defined by work, what is able to be accomplished. 
And indeed, this speaks of the power of God. Um, what he does, he breaks the flaming arrows, uh, the shield and the sword and the weapons of wars. Now, I, I have immediately that idea of the flaming arrow brings up an image of Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul talks about the, the spiritual armor that we're to wear. And he speaks specifically of taking up the shield of faith with which we will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Um, this, is, this is yet another rabbit trail, but I think it applies here uh, in the fact that, that uh, these flaming arrows, I would say, are indeed a favorite weapon of the enemy. And what does it represent? Well, flaming arrows not only, not only do damage by, by piercing whatever they, they land on, but they explode into a, a, a greater sense of, of destruction when they land. And what is that but sin in our lives? It multiplies. As soon as it happens, it multiplies multiple effects throughout our lives. It's rare that sin is only uh, 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 confined to one single area. It's, it's like disease. It ravages much more than the single area. And, and, um, and that's the way the enemy works. Now, uh, God is defined by the fact that he breaks the power of sin as well. Now, he uses the word Selah after defining who, this, who God is. And this word Selah means pause. And at this moment, I think it would be good for us to sit back and contemplate just for a bit, who is God to you? How do you identify him? How do you define him? When you speak to others about the God that you worship, the God that you follow, how do you define him? If we take this pattern that is, is presented for us here in Psalm 76, we should ask, who are his people? Who does he have a relationship with? Where does he belong? Where is his place? Where does he reside? And what is his power? What, what have you witnessed of his work? I think those three items begin to draw for us the picture that we have of God in our own lives. And it should be, it should be personal. But it is also informed by the scripture and the description of God throughout the scripture. But it is intensely personal as well. And it's meant to be so. Now, um, let's go on to verse 4 through 9. The, the final description of God and his power, his work kind of leads us into this uh, next section that, that speaks of God's greatness in, in battle. 
You are resplendent, verse 4, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered, they sank into the deep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You, even you, are to be feared. And you, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You caused judgment to be heard from heaven, and the earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save the humble of the earth. And then he says it again, Selah. Now, uh, the words, you are resplendent, um, speaks of God being luminous. And again, we have to go back to 1 John chapter 1 where he says indeed that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Um, He's more majestic than the mountains of prey. Now, what in the world does that mean? Mountains of prey. Well, number one, the word majestic means wide and large. You're bigger than that, God. And the mountains of prey speak of, of uh, the word prey itself means to be torn from. And it, it speaks of, of flesh being torn. And with that comes the imagery of the provision of sustenance. What is prey but that which, which the hunter shoots? And so the mountains of prey are the mountains of provision. And God is greater than that. His ability to provide sustenance um, is eternal. It's an eternal provision that God gives. The stout-hearted were plundered and sank into the deep. And none of the warriors could use his hands. It's interesting that the New English Bible says they, they cannot lift a hand, and I kind of like that imagery. Uh, they, the, the warriors can't lift a hand against God. Now, the imagery here uh, in verse 6, at your hand, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. What in the world is that? Well, I think perhaps it is an allusion to the Song of Moses, um, um, that Miriam sang in Exodus uh, 15, where uh, Miriam is Aaron's sister, and she sang this song after the children of Israel came through the Red Sea. What, do you remember that story? I'm sure you do. Uh, the children of Israel have just left Egypt, and who comes after them but Pharaoh? And he comes after them with his chariots, right? And the uh, amazing thing is that God opens the sea right in front of them. They are trapped against the Red Sea. And, um, and they, God opens the sea. They walk through the sea on dry land. And Pharaoh says, well, if they can do it, we can do it too. And God closes the sea over top of them. And, of course, the horse and rider are thrown into the sea. You may remember that scripture song, Sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider. He's thrown into the sea. It comes from Exodus 15. Um, Now, that's one possibility. 
The other possibility is um, an allusion to the deliverance from the king of Assyria. Now, this allusion would presume that this psalm is written by one of the descendants of Asaph um, because it is um, speaking of Her uh, Hezekiah's encounter with the kin uh, king of Assyria in uh, Isaiah chapter 37. And I'm just going to read a, a quick summary of that encounter. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib. Don't you love that name, Sennacherib? Sounds like, um, sounds like a, uh, a, something on a menu at, at Amos's. Um, um, yeah, Sennacherib. Maybe a fast food thing, right? Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word of the Lord has spoken against him. Then in verse 33, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come out to this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it by the way that he came by the same way he will return and he will not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then the Assyrians are destroyed. The next, the next verse is this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home to live at Nineveh. So I don't know if this allusion to, to these, uh, the, the warriors not being able to lift their hands is coming from here. Basically, God cuts them off and doesn't allow them to even lift a hand against his people. It may indeed be the picture of the, the chariots and the, the warriors being drowned in the Red Sea. Um, some would say the Red Sea was just a shallow marsh called the Reed Sea. Have you heard that argument before? Yeah. yeah. Well, the cool miracle in that is that the whole army of Pharaoh drowned in a marsh. <laughs> that's a big deal, right? If that's what that is. I prefer to think of it, however, as, as the Lord describes it, they were overwhelmed by the Red Sea coming back upon them. Um, Verse 7, you, even you, are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? That kind of description of God's anger, his wrath, uh, causes us to begin, it should cause us to shake in our boots a bit. Who can stand in the presence of an angry God, Right? But we also have to recognize that this is not an opportunity for us to be too liberal in our personifying of God's wrath. This is not a whimsical anger, not an emotional outburst on God's part. 
No, instead it is the manifestation of his judgment and it is transcendent, it is absolute. Revelation chapter 7, this is what we read in the, the uh, revelation of the Lord to John. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars uh, of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves among rocks and mountains and they said to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Indeed, the wrath of God is not simply an outburst of anger. It is the result of his righteous judgment. Verse 8 in Psalm 76, you cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. It's interesting that between this and the next verse, the word judgment is used twice, but it's two different words. This verse 8, you cause judgment. That means the justice, the cause, if you will, or the suit brought against. It is, it is the cause of God. It is his sense of justice that is brought forward here. God's judgment, his cause is heard from heaven. His intent, in other words, his heart is heard from heaven. And that kind of hearing causes the earth to fall fearfully silent. In other words, when God's intention is understood... There's nothing to say in response. God's, God's justice is final. Now, in verse 9, we read, When God arose to judgment, note that phrase, arose to judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. That word judgment there is a different word, and it means the verdict that is pronounced it is a formal decree and it includes the recitation of the crime it includes the recitation of the place or the circumstance of the crime it it, re, it includes the recitation of the suit that is brought in response to the crime in other words the complaint that is brought um, uh, in response to the crime and then it includes the penalty. And all of that is wrapped up in this word. When God arose to judgment to save the humble of the earth. It's curious to me. It is very curious to me. 
that that word that speaks of the verdict is associated with the reason, the end result of God's judgment. And that is to save the humble. That's awesome, isn't it not? The reason for God's verdict is to save the humble. It's interesting that God seems to always, almost always side with the oppressed. Jesus, on the, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, this collection of, of his teaching in, in what I think, personally, I consider it to be the pinnacle of Scripture because it is the, the gathering of the, the heart of Jesus' teaching. And he starts that message in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is that sense of poverty, of understanding our need of God that enables us to even approach him. But it is also that very desperate need of God that captures his heart because it's tied with his purpose, his justice, his provision, his righteousness. Now, it's interesting here that God intervenes in the life of the oppressed or the, the, the poor in spirit, if you will. In this context here in, in Psalm 76, he intervenes with his judgment. And you could say that his judgment is his will. It's his purpose. And it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he did. He said, this is how you pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is unlike any other set apart. Hallowed is your name. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done speaks of God's cause. It speaks of his justice, his intent, his heart. Your intention be done on the earth, even as it is in heaven. And it's curious that the very next phrase in the Lord's Prayer is connected to the hungry and the weak and the oppressed. Do you remember what it says? Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> and forgive us our debts. We're indebted. We're, we're even weighed down and oppressed by debt. 
forgive us our debts. We can't, there's no way we can pay them, God. Forgive us our debt as we have forgiven our debtors. Wow. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the Lord's Prayer, some manuscripts do not include this last phrase, but others do. It ends traditionally with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And how is God's kingdom and his power seen? Surely it's seen in all of creation, right? But it is also seen in the dispensing of his righteousness, his judgment. And in this we see that God's wrath can even be experienced as his blessing because it fulfills the longing of our own hearts for things to be made right. Justice to be served. Verses 10 through 12 for the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all, those are, uh, let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. For the wrath of men shall praise you. Even the, the evil intention of men will give way to praise to God. Do you remember, um, remember Joseph's comment to his brothers at the end of Genesis when his brothers were afraid that Joseph might, might somehow turn on them for the, the evil that they had done to him years and years earlier? Jo Joseph, as you I'm sure remember, said to them, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that many would be saved as a result. Even the wrathful or the evil intent of men is turned on its head in praise to God. God is sovereign above all his works. Now, it's important to see here that the cross speaks of that as well. Who put the Son of God to death but men in anger and in wrath? And yet it has been turned on its head and it is the source of praise in our lives right now. In fact, so much so that it is the symbol of our faith. Look at it. It is the profound grace of God, the grace of God that is greater than our sin. We need to wrap this up. Let's go on. Make vows, verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. 
Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Vows are promises, right? And they must be fulfilled. In other words, a vow is worthless if it's not fulfilled. It's only a value in its fulfillment. Um, what we do is the value of what we say. And it is true of God as well. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Gifts speak of tribute and homage to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 12, he will cut off the princes, the spirit of the princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Cut off the spirit means end the life, which means end of the lineage, which means the end of the power and dominion of the princes. Um, he is to be feared. And to be feared means to revere. And that reverence is based upon the fact that God is judge. He is the final judge. And not only is he righteous to declare the sentence, but he is all-powerful to deliver the punishment. He is indeed to be feared, and it is a righteous thing to do so. How do we understand the wrath of God then? First of all, it's real. And secondly, it's moral. It's directed against those who oppress God's pious poor ones, the poverty-stricken who know their need of God. And it's awesome. It's to be feared. One final word. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that Jesus takes God's wrath upon himself for our sake. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the judgment that we deserve is born in the sinless son of God. Romans 5, Paul writes, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For the one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man, someone will dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, the enmity between God and sin and those who sin, in other words, humanity, is solved in Jesus as well. Ephesians chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. 
In other words, Jesus solves that dilemma of the wrath of God in our lives. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. That is the glorious truth sitting on this side of the cross. Now, the psalmist wasn't there. He didn't see from the perspective that we see from. But thanks be to God, we have that perspective now. Amen and amen. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the fact that it is the message of hope for us. Even looking at your wrath and your justice, your, your delivery of your verdict, even that is a word of hope to us because, Lord, you indeed set things right. And though we are not able to stand before you in our own righteousness, you invite us to stand before you completely justified in the righteousness of Jesus. How we thank you for that truth and for the security that brings to us in our faith. Lord, we pray that you would help us rehearse these truths in our lives this week. Remind us often of the fact that you are righteous, you are judge, but you are also redeemer. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful rest of the week. We'll see you on the weekend.